good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. Um, I want to thank the Lord for his goodness to us. Before I get started, let me uh, go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we look at his word. Father, all glorious. Lord Jesus, magnificent. Holy Spirit, the one who cries out in us, Abba, Father. We come before you and we recognize that we cannot understand your word. We cannot apply your word unless you do the work. Would you open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts? Would you open our ears, the ears of our hearts, to behold wonderful things from your word? Lord, would you keep the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart so that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how much have you thought about life after death? How much thought have you put into what you will become and what kind of body you will have? Does this impact your day-to-day life? Has your view of the new heavens and earth been impacted by ancient thought, by modern thought? Do you believe that material things, bodies, this sort of stuff are evil, while material thing, immaterial things such as souls are good? Or to put it another way, do you believe that human spirits are better off without bodies? Or that the new heaven and earth is some place where you'll be living in a disembodied realm, floating around in some place. Our inability to appreciate the physical nature of the resurrection not only robs us of our excitement for the world to come, but it robs us of the motivation to live for Jesus in the present day. Today we're going to see that we can work hard in the Lord's work because of our hope of a future bodily resurrection. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a rather large portion of scripture. I think I might have bit off a little more than I could chew this week, but that is all right. We'll do our best. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also of are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of the, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. Amen. So, by way of context, I just want to say that this letter of Paul is really a correction and instruction to the church at Corinth. They had a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of struggles, so they sent Paul a letter, and Paul's responding. In this particular section we're looking at, verses 35 to 58, Paul's answering two questions that the Corinthians have. The first one is, how are we raised from the dead? So he's going to answer the question, how we are raised from the dead. And the second one is the kind of body that we're going to have. Okay, so two questions. And apparently there were people in Corinth who were asking the question of Paul in ridicule, which is why it says, I think, in that early verse, you foolish person. They were mocking him for what he was saying, and so Paul's responding in here. And so, essentially, um, they were probably denying that the resurrection was both future and bodily. And Paul makes reference of it in another passage to talk about Hymenaeus and Alexander, I believe are their names, and he basically says, to, says that they have denied the resurrection, or said actually they've said that the resurrection has already happened. So these are people who are actually thinking that this stuff right here, you've already received the resurrection. In your soul, you are resurrected completely and fully, and there really isn't a resurrection to come. And so you just you shed this body stuff, and then you're up in heaven or wherever, and you're just this floaty substance. That's what they were talking about. And Paul, they're mocking Paul because of his belief in a, in a real physical resurrection into a spiritual body. And so Paul, because of this thinking, um, he is responding to them because he's seeing that Christians are being led into immorality in the present life because of this false view, because of the flesh doesn't matter, so you can pretty much do whatever you want is what they were thinking. But on top of that, that well, the work we're doing in this world really doesn't matter that much because it's just flesh anyway. And so this is what Paul is combating here in this passage. So I want to look at this passage under four headings. First, those in Christ will be resurrected by God's power. 
Then, second, those in Christ will be resurrected with a spiritual body. Third, those in Christ will be resurrected at the return of Christ. And four, those in Christ can work for him in this life in victory. And that's the culmination, the conclusion in verse 58. Okay, so first is how we are raised from the dead. Basically, those who are in Jesus Christ will be raised by God's power. So 35 to 41 is is essentially that we are raised from the dead by God's power. And so we really shouldn't be surprised that it will be a spiritual body that is completely different from our current body. Okay? So he's saying, you were talking about the spiritual body and the new heavens and new earth. And so he's, he's saying to us, well, listen, God can do all this stuff in creation, and he has. So why are you surprised that there's going to be this resurrected spiritual body that is to come. Okay. Now, Paul argues that everyone knows that transformation happens in nature, right? So it shouldn't surprise us when it happens at the resurrection of the dead. Farmers don't plant plants, do they? Do you see people shoving a plant in the ground? No, they plant seeds. Seeds, the outer shell dies, right? And then the plant comes and grows. He's like, this is what happens in life. The thing that starts it isn't the thing that it's complete in, right? Transformation. In fact, in the world, there are many kinds of bodies. And that's what he's saying. And he says, God decides decides what each of these bodies will be and how each one of these bodies is unique. The same that God did and does in creation, he can easily do in the resurrection of the dead. Don't worry about it. Look at how he created the sun. Look at how he created the stars. Look at how he created the animals. They're all different. So what are you worried about, about the coming in the future? It's just because you don't understand it. God can do it. That's what Paul's saying. So we must not be confined by our naturalistic thinking. See, we tend to think naturally because we have physical bodies, so everything has to be physical like our body here, right? So when something is outside of that, something is beyond that, we're like, okay, it must not be able to be. But he's saying, look at the created order. Everything's different. The glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, it's different from the glory that's on the earth. There's, it's not that one is necessarily greater than the other, it's just that they have different glories, different beauty to them. And so we should not doubt that God will clothe us with transformed and glorified bodies that are fitting for eternity. See, these perishable bodies are not fit for eternity. They are not, they cannot dwell eternally. They're made of dust. They will corrode and they will just be done. Turn back to dust. All right. So second, the kind of body we will have. Those in Christ will be resurrected with a spiritual body. Now I'm using the term spiritual and I use this term spiritual. I'm going to explain. I'm using a capital S and I know it's like, whoa, wait a minute, but I'm using a capital S. It's a spiritual body. So Paul contrasts the resurrection and pre-resurrection body of believers. He contrasts the body that is under the curse of sin with a body that's resurrected. Okay? Paul teaches that we will not have a body like we have now, one that is decaying, one that is dishonorable, one that is weak, one that is conceived under the rule of sin. No, we will have a spiritual body that is recreated by the work of Jesus at the resurrection. So our natural body, this one right here, is going to be sown like a seed, put in the earth, dies, and then comes to life. It grows like that. Um, 
it is, will be raised and be transformed so thoroughly by Jesus, who gives the Spirit, that we will be completely indwelt. I mean, do you understand this? In the, new, in the new heavens and new earth, you will be completely indwelt, you will be completely renovated, that the only way to define your new body is that it is spiritual, a capital S, done by, with, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is done by Jesus, who we will read shortly, is called the life-giving spirit. Now, a spiritual body doesn't mean some sort of body, though, that's made up of, quote, spiritual substance. Right? You ever thought about that? What is, a, what is spiritual? Little s, spiritual. What is it? Can anybody define that? Casper the friendly ghost, maybe? I mean, what do you think about when you think of spiritual? It's a bizarre thing, isn't it? Something that doesn't have anything concrete. It doesn't have particles to it. it maybe, I don't know. Right? It's just this entity that floats around. So, whatever that is, but a body with its physicality that has been so thoroughly transformed or recreated by Jesus through the Spirit that it will be suitable to be with God. Suitable for the new heavens and new earth. You understand that? It has to be so transformed by the Holy Spirit that it is completely suitable to be in the presence of a holy God who is a consuming fire. Who will not die when it sees God face to face. You ever thought about that? How does your new body not just completely be pulverized by seeing God who is pure light? Well, it's a new body transformed into a spiritual body, a body that is recreated by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, next, Paul, in verses 44, the last half of 44 to 45, goes on to explain the how and the why of getting a spiritual body. The idea here is that the first man, that's Adam, became a living life or a living thing. But the last Adam, Christ, it says... And you look at it in your Bibles, it says, became a life-giving spirit. Now, I will tell you the truth. The only translation that uses this thing and puts a capital S, life-giving spirit, is the New Living Translation, which is more like a paraphrase. However, I think it's right, and I'm going to explain. In quoting Genesis 2-7, Paul makes a contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. So Adam, the first created being, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So just as the last three verses were comparing a corruptible, dishonorable, weak, and natural body to an incorruptible, honorable, powerful, spiritual body, so Adam now is being compared with Christ. Adam is being compared with Christ. Adam, it says, became a living life based upon God's breath. But he could not impart life. You understand that, right? Adam simply had life. But Jesus can impart life. Now, Jesus, though, at his resurrection, became the one who is life-giving. In other words, Adam was simply made a man. But at Christ's resurrection, Jesus became the one who is the real life-giver. Now, I want to you to hear something from John 6, 63. Or I, I, I'm not going to quote it, but I, I want, you can look at it later. 
Jesus says of the Spirit in John 6, 63, that he is life-giving. The Spirit directly is said to be life-giving. That word, life-giving, is the exact same word used in verse 45 here. In the Greek, it's the exact same word. Everything, tense, everything. And so, if the Spirit is said to be the one who gives life, and now Jesus is said to be the one who gives life, then what does this mean but that Jesus is now at his resurrection and beyond, he is attributed with that which the Spirit does. You see what I'm saying? The Spirit gives life. In this verse, Jesus is it's saying that Jesus is the one who gives life. But wait a minute, I thought you said the Spirit gave life, John. Paul says, Jesus gives life. Okay, so very clearly here we see that it, it, Jesus is doing the very same thing which the Spirit does. This is why I believe that Paul is saying here that Jesus became life-giving Spirit. Now, this should make us ask some very important questions. Number one, when did he become life-giving Spirit? Number two, what does it mean that he became life-giving Spirit? And number three, how does this affect the Trinity? Okay, these are very important questions. So, First, when did he become life-giving spirit? Jesus very clearly was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was he not? Right? He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, which is why he did not have a sinful nature. Right? Jesus wasn't a sinner by nature. Yet he was conceived of the substance of the Virgin Mary. And so the Bible says that he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he wasn't born with a sin nature, but he was born in likeness of the sinful flesh. Do you know what that means? He was born with a body just like ours. That was decaying and leading to death. Right? Some people have a hard time with that, but the Bible teaches that he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he had a body that was under the curse of the law. It was able to die. And when he was born, his body wasn't spiritual. It was earthly. It, if we go further in his life, at his baptism, we receive, see that he received the Holy Spirit for the empowerment of his ministry. Yet he still had a natural body, an Adamic nature just like ours, and that was subject to death and decay. He was empowered by the Spirit, and the Spirit was guiding him and giving him the power to do miracles, right? But his body was just like ours, dying. That is not a spiritual body, you understand. A spiritual body cannot die. Okay, so the answer to the question then, right, he, he did receive the Holy Spirit to equip and empower him, but not yet in his humanity was he life-giving. So here's what I'm saying. Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, in his physical body, in his humanity, was not yet life-giving. He wasn't. Now, but the answer then to this question of when did Jesus become life-giving is actually found in the context of 1 Corinthians 15. And what's the whole context of this passage? The resurrection. The resurrection. It was at Jesus' resurrection that he became life-giving. So now you might ask me the question, well, what does it mean that he became life-giving spirit? So notice how verse 45, what it's talking about. It's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. 
If you're talking about Adam, what are you talking about? The human nature, right? We're talking about Christ in his humanity. So this becoming is strictly speaking of his humanity. You see, Jesus Christ is eternal God. The context of 1 Corinthians 15.45 is not speaking of Christ's divinity in any way. Jesus' divinity did not become spirit, right? Make sense, right? We know the Trinity. I'll get into that in a moment. The resurrection that God the Father did upon Jesus' humanity by the Holy Spirit on the third day after his burial shows that the Father would not allow his Son to see corruption. Have you ever read Psalm 16 and wondered what that means when it says, I will not allow my Holy One to see corruption? What does that mean? It means that Jesus' body did not undergo decay. He was raised before his body decayed. Corruption. How was he raised? By the Holy Spirit. So when God raised Jesus from the dead by the Holy Spirit, he was raised in his humanity. In his humanity. He was raised in his Adamic identity. In other words, when God raised Jesus from the dead, because of the, his perfect work as Christ the mediator, perfectly and completely fulfilling the will of God for our salvation, Jesus Christ was given a spiritual body. Right? He was given a spiritual body. So this is why verse 20 spoke of Jesus Christ as the first fruits. He was the very first resurrected being in his body of those who had died. In other words, Jesus is the first one to be resurrected by God through the Spirit. He was the first one to receive a spiritual body. And this resurrected body of Christ now had no vestiges of the natural it is completely spiritual. It is controlled and governed and empowered and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And so now at his resurrection, all the corruption that was found in the natural body, right? Jesus wasn't sinful, but the body was corrupted. It decayed. It eroded. It could die. All that was gone. The very nature of Jesus' humanity is completely animated by the Spirit such that the physical has no death in it. His body is now spiritual. And so remember Jesus' post-resurrection body? Do you remember? It's weird, right? What did Jesus do? He walked through walls. He sat down and ate fish. How do you walk through walls and eat fish? Have you ever thought about that? It's because the nature of his body is a spiritual body. It has been physically resurrected, but is resurrected by the Spirit and has properties that are beyond our ability to understand. Otherwise, that thing makes no sense. <laughs> he could eat food and disappear at mealtime, right then at mealtime. Same time. He's sitting down, boop, gone. Where'd he go? I don't know. He'll be back. That, I mean, that's what happened. That's what happened. So, but what of this became? He, the last Adam, now became life-giving spirit. He became this by coming into such complete possession of the Holy Spirit in his humanity that he is said to be life-giving spirit. So how is it that he became, came into possession of the spirit like this in humanity? The Father. The Father, at the resurrection, gave Jesus in his humanity, 
the Holy Spirit in absolute and full measure. And this possession of the Spirit and the transformation of his humanity at the resurrection was so complete, it was so permanent, that it can now be said that Christ and the Spirit are one. But this oneness is not, it is not a oneness of being. It's not a oneness of being. Jesus and the Holy Spirit do not fuse together and become one person, okay? It is a oneness in work. And what is their work to save you, to give you life? And so it can be said that Jesus gives us new life. But it's the Holy Spirit who gives us new life, isn't it? Yes and yes. You see how it works? Jesus Christ in his humanity he can give the Spirit. And this is why, in the weirdness of it all, in the book of John, do you remember he's in the room with his disciples? And it says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What? He breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit? How is it? Well, because the Father gave Jesus the Holy Spirit to be able to give to us and to be able to give him life. But because he's the Savior, because he's the Creator and the Savior, he is given the Holy Spirit in such measure that he is allowed to give the Holy Spirit to you and to me. So it is, can be said that it is Jesus Christ who makes us alive from the dead. But it's the Holy Spirit who does it. So Jesus does it through the Holy Spirit. And so, after Christ's resurrection, it is not that the Spirit alone resurrects us, but that Christ, the last Adam, as the life-giving Spirit, does. In other words, Jesus in his humanity makes us alive through the Spirit to whomever the Father gives him, Titus 3.6. So that's why Jesus is called life-giving Spirit. So now, the big elephant in the room is, what about the Trinity? Okay? So, you might ask me and say, well, how can this be? without compromising the personal distinctions between the Son and the Spirit? The short answer is that it doesn't. It doesn't affect it at all. It doesn't affect the identity and the persons of the Trinity. In Acts, I believe in chapter 5, if you remember, there was a couple people who decided that they were going to use their giving to um, make themselves, you know, look good in the church. And so they said they were going to sell their land and give all the money, but they didn't. They stuck some of it away, and they were killed. And before they were killed by God, it says, hey, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, oh, yeah, how can you do this because you've lied to God? So the Holy Spirit is equated and said to be God. And it doesn't say Jesus there. It says the Holy Spirit. So there's a very clear distinction that's made all throughout the Scripture. But in 2 Corinthians 3 and in many other places throughout the Bible, you can see both the functional union, right, and the, 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 the personhood, the distinctions of personhood. And so here's what I'm getting at. Jesus' human nature was not changed or somehow fused into the Holy Spirit. Okay? His human nature did not become the Holy Spirit. But instead, he came into complete possession of the Holy Spirit so that he is the first fruits of all the resurrected. The true spiritual man 
But as the God-man, because of his work on the cross and his promised offspring, he is the one who gives us life. He is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to all those who put their trust in him because the Father gave him the Spirit at the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 says this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you hear what that said? Jesus Christ received the promise of the Holy Spirit and he was the one who poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So oftentimes we can think that the Holy Spirit was the one who poured himself out at Pentecost. But it was actually Jesus who poured the Holy Spirit out in Pentecost. Why? Because Jesus is the one who gives life. Because the Father promised the Son that because of his work, he would have the Holy Spirit in such a full measure that he could give the Holy Spirit to others. And so if you have the Holy Spirit today, it's because Jesus gave him to you. Jesus resurrects the souls and the bodies of everyone who trusts in him. And this is why Jesus could meet with the disciples and have them say, and he could say, receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about, why did Jesus have the authority to look at the disciples in that room and say, receive the Holy Spirit? How, how does he have that authority? Because the Father gave him that authority, gave him the Holy Spirit in his humanity. Because when Jesus spoke those words, was he, was he just in his divinity? At the time he was in the room with them? No, because Thomas around that time, could put his fingers in Jesus' prints on his hands and in his side. He was human, a spiritual new human. And that spiritual body that Jesus Christ had could give the Holy Spirit. Okay, Now, Jesus grants the Holy Spirit to his people. The reason that we will have a spiritual body is that Jesus Christ will give it to us by right of his completing the work of our redemption. The Father grants Jesus in his humanity full possession of the Spirit such that when he works, when Jesus works, guess who else works? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is working. The Spirit is working. And so Paul continues... On in verse 46, by ensuring that the Corinthians understand that the natural or unspiritual body must come first before the spiritual body comes. In other words, the ideal, the perfect, should not be found at the beginning of history or somehow outside of history, but at the end of history, at the resurrection when Christ returns. So in verses 47 to 49, Paul is contrasting further the first Adam who is earthly. So he says those who are found in him are, are and will be earthly, but who are found in Adam, but those who are found in Christ are and will be heavenly. Christ as life-giving spirit is the resurrected and ascended Christ. He is glorified. He is exalted. He is the heavenly one. And those who are united to him at his ascension, in his ascension, are heavenly. And so then every person who's born of Adam, who's born in the image of Adam, made of the dust of a ground, is prone to corruption. But those who are born again in Christ into his image are made into his likeness. And so those who believe in Christ are united to him and at their future resurrection will have a body just like he does, a spiritual body. They will experience complete transformation of their bodily existence which will be controlled and governed by the Holy Spirit. But one of the differences, one of the differences is 
you don't get the Holy Spirit to give. You're not life-giving. I'm not life-giving. Jesus alone is life-giving. But we have the same kind of spiritual body. So when you start thinking about this, if we're said to get the same body as Jesus, that means that you will have such a body that as part of this physical world, you'd be able to walk through walls and eat fish. Think about that. Jesus has said that he is the new man and we are created and we will be created in him like him, in his likeness, right? You can start saying, well, that was his divinity or this or that or the other thing, but no, it was his resurrection body because you could put his, a finger in his side and he could go through walls. How do you do that? I don't know. But Paul told us earlier, hey, he's God. It's all right. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand. If you try to understand it, it's going to blow your mind. And you'll probably go into heresy and all sorts of other things. So don't, so, so trust him. And so we will receive a spiritual body, a body that is, listen, united with and governed by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that body will never decay. Never, ever, ever decay. You know how you feel right now? You're hurting, right? Probably in some parts of your body at some point. Knees hurt, your arms hurt, your head hurts, got headaches, right? All these things. None of that. None of that. It's a body by the Spirit that's resurrected. A physical, spiritual body. That's the best way to say it. Spiritual meaning one that is governed and controlled by the Spirit. So lastly, the ramifications for us. Those in Christ can work for him in this life in victory. See, Paul never gives abstract concepts like these. We, I just spent 20 minutes on abstract concept. Paul takes that abstract concept because you need to understand it, but drives it down to the practical. And here's where, it's, where he goes with this. Paul basically says, listen, the reality of the upcoming spiritual body that you're going to receive He's like, he wants to see that there's a connection between what we do in the present and our future state. So if you're going to be raised, not with this physical body, but with a spiritual body, then you need to think about how living in the present affects your spiritual body. So in verse 50, he brings out the reality that nobody who lives according to the flesh can be part of the new heaven and the new earth. The temporary and corrupt, he tells us, can't inherit the permanent, cannot enter the permanent and perfect. Heaven, new earth, new earth, new heaven is permanent and perfect. The temporary and corrupt can't enter it. That's what Paul's getting at. It's got to be different, completely different. So in case some begin to think that this day of transformation at those in, of those in Christ into the permanent will never happen, Paul in verses 51 to 53 explains that something incredible is going to happen at the end of time in history. He says, not every person will die. That's what he's saying. Some will be alive when Jesus returns. Oh, Lord, I'd love for that to happen. At the trumpet blast. At the trumpet blast. They will go from corruptible bodies like this to incorruptible bodies. Boom. Just like that. The dead will rise from the grave with incorruptible bodies. The alive will somehow just whoo, magically be transformed and have incorruptible, uncorruptible bodies. And so, in the blink of an eye, can you imagine that? How fast it takes to blink that eye? The trumpet sounds, and boom, you now have a spiritual body. And this is probably why the early church cried out, Maranatha, come quickly, Jesus. 
It's not wrong to want to shed this corruptible flesh. But Paul's making sure that you know that it doesn't mean that you can just live like there's nothing doing in this world. Like, who cares? So, Jesus will do that. He will give us spiritual bodies that will no longer be able to decay and will be controlled and animated by the Spirit. And those alive will be given their bodies as well. Everyone will be changed at once. And anybody who will be in the new heaven and new earth will have an incorruptible and immortal spiritual body. All must be like Christ, living in the Spirit, not just in their soul, but in their bodies too, those who are united to Him. And then and only then can they be with God forever. And so this is why verses 54 to 57 quote Isaiah 25, which is why I had us read that earlier. On that day, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ returns, Jesus will destroy death forever. He will wipe every tear from your, our, our eyes. And I don't know if you've ever cried, but do you ever let anybody wipe a tear from your eye? You want people getting their fingers next to this? No, you don't. You always close your eyes and everything else so that Jesus will wipe the tears. That's how intimate, that's how precious our relationship with him is. He will wipe those tears from our eyes. I want to feel Jesus' finger on my face. He will remove all our disgraces. We will no longer have a remnant of sin and corruption in us. We will no longer carry the shame of sin, of half-heartedly loving God. No, on that day we will rejoice in His salvation. Death will be completely defeated because those who have rebelled against God will be everlastingly punished and those who are in Christ will be everlastingly rewarded. No longer will a body be in a state of decaying or dying. For all outside of Christ, they'll be forever in corrupted bodies, but not those who are united to Christ will be in spiritual bodies. Can you imagine being in a corruptible body that doesn't ever dissipate? That's what it'll be like if you don't believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But those in Christ will have a spiritual body, perfect, complete. And so Jesus will then have been completely victorious over death. Death will no longer reign in our mortal bodies. Death cannot beat us. Death cannot bring us pain. Adam's sin introduced death into the world, which is now the fate of every human. Since presence requires the law to be in effect, which ultimately pronounces the death sentence. And so because of sin, death must reign as just payment. But at the return of Christ, Death will have no power over us because we will be made fully alive as spiritual people. And so we should be giving thanks to God because he defeated death through the work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam on the cross. And he vindicated it through the resurrection. And now guess what? Therefore, brothers and sisters, are you listening? Therefore, because of all these things, because Jesus Christ is life-giving spirit, because Jesus Christ is in possession of the Spirit, because Jesus Christ makes you alive, because Jesus Christ will give you a new body at the new coming. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see the connection? The physical body that you have now is sowing to eternity. What you do today matters. Do not live as people who are just caught up in the world. Be living as spiritual people who you will become one day. And so we, the application is that we are living in victory. We are currently resurrected people in our soul. 
Though not yet in our bodies, that's coming. It's coming. Be patient. If you're hurting today, be patient. You're going to get fixed. We will not always be in these corruptible and dying bodies. No, even today, the trumpet could sound. Do you realize? I could say the doxology and Jesus could show up. And we would all be changed just like that. Do you know that was the hope of the early church? That he could come back now, right while I'm speaking. Right while I'm speaking. Would that be amazing? Come quickly, Jesus. So the labor that we do is not in vain. We should not live as corrupt people, but live as incorruptible people that we will soon become. We should be working diligently for the Lord. And when we do, we can be confident that our labor isn't just for this temporary world. Your labor, the good you do, the people you love, the gospel you share, that's for eternity, brothers and sisters. That's where the fruit will bear. And so, because of the hope of our bodily spiritual direction, we can live differently in our day-to-day lives. And there are three things. First, you need to be steadfast. Because of the hope of our bodily resurrection, be steadfast. This means that you should be firmly or solidly rooted in the reality of who you are and who you will be. You have been raised with Christ in your souls and have never been more alive than we are today. Do you know that? In your souls, you have died with Christ. You have raised with him, and you are never more alive today in your soul than right now. You're not going to be more alive. You've got a spiritual body where you shed all this stuff off, but you're alive in Christ Jesus. And so because of that, don't live with the, in, as corruptible people live in the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all sorts of stuff like Rather, we should live as people who are walking in step with the Spirit, as those who will soon be spiritual people, living in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should be firmly rooted in this fruit in our day-to-day lives. But second, you need to be immovable. Be immovable. Don't be open to shifting or changing. We must always be living as if we are incorruptible people people who are controlled, people who are guided by the Spirit. We should be people who do not shift from one day, Sunday, in here, living like spiritual people, and then on Wednesday you behave like a corruptible person. No, that's not, that's not how it should be. You should live, I should live, as if we are controlled and the Spirit is the controlling principle of our lives. We must be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, we live as people who are to be resurrected soon. Live the reality that Jesus could come back today and Wednesday and Friday and Saturday when it's so far, you're like, oh, it's Saturday. Get my mind set back on Christ. Paul's like, no, that's not how it functions. You've got to live in Christ every day. So finally... Because of the hope of our bodily spiritual resurrection, we must abound in the work of the Lord so that our labor is not in vain. Listen, if you live as natural people, live for temporary things, then what we do will be empty and have no carryover value for eternity. Now listen, kids, I'm not saying don't brush your teeth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't do your schoolwork. Do your schoolwork. That's not what I'm saying. But you, I know, I know, you wish, right? But... All of, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't experience 
entertainment or go to work. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. God gave you those things as gifts. Enjoy them. But you do them as not corruptible people, but as incorruptible people glorifying God and enjoying those wonderful gifts that he's giving us. And listen, kids, your teeth are a gift. If you don't take care of them, you've, really, you've taken a really nice thing and you've destroyed them. Right? So that's the sort of thing that you need to do. You, you live still. And so, we use all these things to make us fit for eternity. Now, I'm not saying you don't earn your way to God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're a spiritual person, live like it. I mean, right? If that's who you are, just live that way. So, we... We must not live for the things of the world. We must be people who work and do all we do for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, Paul says. We must do all for God's glory and honor. We must live as resurrection people, soon to be spiritual people. We must make our future hope be lived in present reality. Okay? You hear that? Future hope, bring it into your present reality. Future hope into today. I mean, I'll Fly Away is a fun song, okay? But it kind of is opposite what Paul's saying here, right? It's true, we will be lifted up with Jesus, right? So there's truth to it. But the reality is, is, is that it can give you, it can leave you in a place where you forget about the world and what God is asking you to do in the world for him. And so... We must make our future hope to be lived in present reality. All we do should be investments. These are investments. If any of you ever have jobs that you can do 401ks, you're investing into the future. Paul's saying, use your life now to invest into the future, to your spiritual future. So we should gauge whether all that we do, okay, is sowing into our future our spiritual bodily life with God, or whether what we're doing is sowing simply to the flesh. So my challenge for you today and this week is to start sowing for the reality of the spiritual life that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And my challenge to you is to look at other people and find, see whether or not they're sowing for the corruptible and give them the gospel of Jesus dying and rising and the future resurrection that they can have in him so that they will no longer be sowing for, it, for corruption, but they will be sowing for immortality, for the spiritual. Father, these things are weighty today, heavy and deep but you've given your people your spirit. And so I pray that you would take these things and make them fresh and new and allow us to be changed and to see these wonderful things. We thank you and we praise you and ask that you would make us to live with the hope of Jesus' return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.